Yeah, with that kind of intro, uh, prepare yourselves for utter disappointment, but I'm, I'm glad to be here with you. I've, I've been here several times before, always good to be back down here and be able to preach and, and hang out with you. I do want to give you a quick update on what's going on at CNU. Uh, as Carlos said, RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship. It is the denominational campus ministry of the PCA. It's an agency of the church. Um, and what RUF, uh, one, one thing that I love about our denomination is they feel like it's a good idea to send guys like me, ordained PCA ministers, to the campus full time to love, counsel, and reach students for Christ and equip them to serve. And one of the distinct privileges that I get to have as being a PCA pastor here in our presbytery is getting to come and spend time with you and give Carlos some time off and, you know, just to be about the church. And us RUF guys, we love the church. We're all about the church. We want to fill the church. And so please pray for us. We had a great year. We did a startup at CNU, Christopher Newport University, if you're not familiar with that. Um, we did a startup three years ago. And this past year, we just finished our third year by the grace of Jesus. And this past year was great because basically our ministry kind of just tripled in size overnight. We went from probably mid-teens or so coming to our weekly large group meetings to close to mid-30s coming every week. A lot of freshmen and sophomores coming in. Um, and we just, we just got back from Panama City, Florida, which is where RUF's national conference is. It's called Summer Conference. We took 21 students to Summer Conference. We took seven last year. So the Lord tripled that as well. Great opportunity for our students to go and just see RUF on the national stage. And suddenly having a minister that drives a minivan is not that weird anymore. Like they get down and go, oh, they have a campus minister too. They have a campus minister too. And suddenly it kind of makes it all seem normal. And so please pray for us. We'd love to talk to you if you have any more questions about that. I put some newsletters out on the table. Please grab one. Please pray for us. We'd love to talk to you about how you can support us and help a matching grant that we have this summer. We'd love to just answer any questions that you have about RUF. Thank you so much for letting me come and be a part of the service here this morning. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're welcome. So, now as I segue into the disappointing part where I'm not the good-looking stoke pastor that you were looking for, let's go to Psalm 130. We sang the words to it earlier in that hymn from the depths of woe, which is a, which is a great hymn. This morning we're going to look at one of the Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 130. And we're going to read the entire thing because it's not that long. <coughs> Let me remind you as we approach God's Word this morning that this is not just some teaching that a man thought of and thought it would be great to put it in a book. This is the very Word of the Lord. We'd be very wise if we listen to it and give attention. These are the words of life. Let's read together Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord does indeed stand forever. Let's pray together this morning as we approach this text. 
Gracious Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand before you, Lord? But with you, there is plentiful redemption and forgiveness, and we're thankful for that. We're thankful that you're not hiding from us. We're thankful that you are revealing yourself to us, that your faithfulness is renewed every morning. Thank you, Lord, that you're a God of grace. Thank you that you're speaking to us. Thank you for this word that we hold in our hands. May we not take it for granted. Father, we pray that you would meet us here, that you would soften our hearts to your word, that you would remove distractions from our hearts. We're all busy, worried people. We pray, Lord, that we would see your grace and your forgiveness so much more clearly this morning, that you would convict us of our sins, that it would drive us to worship you all the more. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you were here or if you lived on the East Coast. I know this area has a lot of you know, moving in, moving out. But in 2004, there was this hurricane that came through, Hurricane Ivan. I don't know if you remember. I was living in North Carolina at the time. I was living at Camp Greystone in Tuxedo, North Carolina, in the mountains of western North Carolina. And I remember this hurricane coming through. And I remember when I, I lived at, on the camp property, and we lived in this small little cabin with a tin roof that was surrounded by these massive hemlock trees. I mean, massive, old, old hemlock trees, probably foot and a half, two foot in diameter, you know, 80 feet tall, these huge trees, but they were like a horseshoe around our house. And when this hurricane came, came sweeping through and came sweeping through the southeast, the most intense rain hit in the middle of the night, probably 50 to 60 mile per hour winds, pretty sustained winds with 80 mile per hour gusts. There were six to eight inches of rain that fell in one night alone. And the upper elevations are around Asheville and points, points north of that. And that up in the higher elevations got a, over a foot of rain in a, in a night. That's a, an amazing amount of rain. And my wife used to work for the North Carolina Geological Survey. And the next morning got the call in that there was this huge landslide that had happened up at the upper elevations. It was, it was over a mile long. It started up at the top of the mountain. And it worked its way down and took out houses and, and just destroyed a lot of a lot of property closed down the creek over took a lot of roads out just an, an amazing intense storm and needless to say as that storm was sweeping through that night we did not sleep a week i mean tin roof huge hemlock trees it's raining buckets the wind swaying our little our old little house is actually kind of swaying a little bit when the really intense winds hit we didn't sleep a wink because all we could hear was that howling wind and that rain, and we just were hoping and praying that one of those hemlock trees didn't come right through the middle of our house. Maybe you've had a similar experience in the midst of a hurricane or a storm where you're looking out and you're seeing a tree, and you're going, please, Lord, don't put that thing through my living room or, or through one of my kids' bedrooms. It's, it's amazing. It's, it's really, maybe you've had a similar experience like that. Maybe you've been on a camping trip. Maybe you've been through a bad storm. Or maybe you just had a really anxious night. A night, one of those nights where you can't sleep. Those nights where you're kind of tossing and turning. The worries of the world are almost like the wind and the rain that are assailing you all night long. And you just cannot catch sleep. Maybe you've had one of those moments. It's left you longing for the dawn to come. I know for us, we could not wait for the sun to come up. Just to be able to look out and make sense of what was around us. And to suddenly... We could see that the trees had not fallen. Maybe you've had one of those nights, the dark nights of the soul, where you're tossing and turning and you just, the sun cannot come up fast enough. There's a show I like to watch on, on TV on the Discovery Channel. Maybe you watch it. It's called The Deadliest Catch. 
know if you've ever seen it. It's about these guys who go crab fishing in the Bering Sea off the coast of Alaska. They're crazy. And they go out there in the, in the middle of the ocean. It's called the deadliest catch because it is one of the deadliest jobs in the world. More guys get hurt, injured, or killed. Boats get capsized. Out in the middle of nowhere, a road wave comes over, takes the boat down. That's all she wrote. You have, if you're not in your survival suit, you have under a minute to live before the water gets so cold that it basically just paralyzes your body and you die. And the fleet was out fishing one episode, and this massive storm hit in the middle of the night with 40 to 50 foot swells. I don't know if you can wrap your brain around a 40 to 50 foot wave out in the middle of the ocean. And these guys are not in cruise ships. They are in fishing boats. And a 40 to 50 foot wave, these swells, and the boat is just riding these swells up at night, all, all night long. And one of the captains there, Captain Sig Hansen, who's the captain of one of the boats called the Northwestern, this guy is carved out of wood. He's been a fisherman his whole life. He is a rock. Nothing gets to him. He's the guy that will drive his drive drive the guys on deck to work hard. And even Sig Hansen, in the middle of the storm, said, if we can just make it till morning, we'll be okay. If we can just make it till the storm passes through, if I can just make it to where I can see what's coming, we'll be all right. He had to stay up all night jogging the boat over these huge waves that he could barely see just to keep the fishing boat upright. They offloaded all of their gear to keep the weight down on the boat, and the fishing ceased. At that point, it was just survival. Jogging the boat all night long just to keep it upright so that the storm would pass, that in the morning he could look out and at least see what's coming. It was amazing. But the dawn brought relief and hope that the storm was passing. As we look at Psalm 130 here, we see that Psalms, Psalms 120 to 135 all start with the title of Song of Ascents. And that's original to the Hebrew. It's, it's, um, it's the inspired Hebrew title. And pilgrims used to sing these songs together on pilgrimages to Jerusalem several times a year. There's some debate between scholars of what they were actually used for, but some people think it might have been maybe an early hymn book. But these are the songs that we're singing as we go towards Jerusalem. And basically what would happen is folks would sing these songs as they moved from the valley below up to the Temple Mount, up to the stairs of the temple. As they ascended geographically, the temple was on the highest point. They would come from the valley below and they would literally ascend up the hill to the temple. And they would sing these psalms together. And while Psalm 130 is a psalm of ascent, I don't know if you noticed within the lines, it's eight verses long. It actually features an ascent within its lines. It moves from spiritual shame and guilt to assurance in a short amount of time. There was this guy in the 16th century who was a Spanish priest. His name was John of the Cross. And he wrote a poem that was called The Dark Night of the Soul. And this poem described this feeling of spiritual loneliness and desolation, a guilt and a shame over sin, over his own brokenness, and, and feeling kind of hemmed in and crushed by that. And maybe at some point in our Christian life, maybe even right now, maybe where you are right now, maybe you are experiencing this feeling or have experienced this feeling, this dark night of the soul. Where you feel maybe your own brokenness, maybe something you're ashamed of, maybe a secret that you have in your heart that you would not tell anyone else. In the middle of the night, it starts weighing on you, and you just are longing for the dawn to come. I mean, it feels like maybe sin has us by the throat, and we're about to be capsized by one of those 40 to 50 foot waves that's coming. 
that we can't see coming. We feel like at any point we're just trying to hang on. And at any point, we could go under. Maybe you've had one of those nights before. And the question I want us to think through as we look at this psalm this morning is, what do we do when we experience a dark night of the soul? What are we to do when we feel like a tree is about to drop, or a tree has dropped through our spiritual house? What do we do? What do we do in those moments? And the thing about Psalm 130 that's so amazing is it responds in three incredible ways. And these will be our three points if you're taking notes at home. Here's our three points this morning. God is a gracious listener. That's verses 1 and 2. God is a gracious forgiver. Verses 3 and 4. And finally, God is a gracious redeemer through the end of the psalm in verse 8. Those are our three points. We'll see that the Psalm 130 responds by God is a gracious listener, he's a gracious forgiver, and he's a gracious redeemer. Let's look at that first point this morning. God is a gracious listener in verses 1 and 2. It says, the psalm reads, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. I mean, I think oftentimes when we're in anguish, isn't it? When, when we're struggling, when, we're, when we feel like we're in anguish, oftentimes don't we think that no one else is listening? We often feel alone in the universe. Like nobody really gets us. Nobody can really understand us. If only people knew what I was really going through, specifically me, then they would just understand. But I don't feel like anybody gets me. I just kind of feel like I'm alone in the universe, kind of fighting this myself. What happens here is the author of the psalm is crying out to God from the depths. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. The, psalm, the hymn that we sung, from the depths of woe, I raise to thee a voice of lamentation. And the Hebrew word that's used there, out of the depths, implies water. It's used elsewhere in, Psalm, in Isaiah 51 that talks about this deep water. In Psalm 69, I, I'm, in a, I'm stuck in a deep mire. Or maybe you're familiar with John Bunyan's work, Pilgrim's Progress, where it talks about Christian as he's moving on his way towards the celestial city. He gets caught up and bogged down in something called the Slough of Despond, this deep, dark swamp. It feels like the, the mud and the mire and the muck are up to his neck, up to his, up to his shoulders, and, he, and his way gets blocked. And literally what happens here in this psalm is it, it's almost like the author is drowning in his sin, and he is crying out to God for help. The raw urgency and the honesty in this verse is so tangible because we've all had that experience. We've all had that experience where we say, Lord, I am at the end of myself. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O oh Lord, hear my cries for mercy. Hear me, Lord. Where are you? We've all had those moments when we experienced that. I don't know if you saw a movie that came out in 2010. It was called 127 Hours. It's a pretty amazing movie. It's a story of Aaron Ralston. Even if you didn't see the movie, you may have heard the story. This guy, Aaron Ralston, who was hiking in the remote canyons in Utah, and basically what happens is he gets caught in a bowl, he gets caught in a in a valley in a little gully, and a boulder pins his arm to the wall. And he's basically down there by himself. He's stuck to the canyon wall with this boulder that's too big for him to move, pinning him to the side of the wall. He can't, he can't go anywhere. And he, he goes out into the desert as a guy who's been out there many, many times before. And basically what you see in the movie is he goes from this cocky bravado kind of self-confidence, like, I got this covered. He goes from that to sheer desperation in an instant. All of a sudden, his situation has changed. He realizes that he is hopelessly stuck 
in a deep canyon, and he's miles from anywhere, from any help. This is a desperate situation. He is in the middle of a wilderness area, and he is just, he is in one canyon of thousands of canyons that are out there, and it's so deep that no one flying overhead, no one can hear him crying. He is stuck in the middle of nowhere, hopelessly pinned to, hopelessly pinned to the wall. It is desperate. There's a scene in the movie where water comes, where it starts raining, one of those rare moments in the desert where a big storm comes through. And as you know, the, the ground is really hard there. And so the, the rain does not soak in. It actually runs off quickly. And where does it run to? The lowest point, right? That's where water usually finds its way. And so he's pinned in this bowl. He's pinned to the wall. All of a sudden, a flash flood comes. And it starts filling up the bowl. It starts filling up the canyon. And here comes the water. Up and up up and up and up and he's literally in the movie it's right here it stops right here and then it starts receding just that quick moment of I'm dead and this is where the psalmist finds himself he's up to his neck in desperation and brokenness and he can only cry out for help and by the work of the Holy Spirit the mirror of the soul is placed directly in front of him and he has nowhere to hide and the unvarnished truth just kind of snaps him into reality. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my cry. And in verse 2, the imperative voice is used here in the Hebrew, which is kind of the, the sense of urgency. Like, Lord, hear me. This is bold letters, underlined, as big a font as you can get, multiple exclamation points. Lord, hear my cry for mercy. Lord, please, this is desperate. I'm pinned to the wall. Please help me, Lord. And I think this cry in the Psalm, Psalm 130 gives us insight into our own hearts that when trouble strikes, we feel like we're the only ones who are facing problems and that we're entitled to an answer right now. But the thing we need to remember is that God hears the collective cries for mercy across the world, across his creation, and he responds according to his goodwill and his good plan. There was this other movie that you may have seen. It's a cinematic masterpiece. It's called Bruce Almighty. It has Jim Carrey. It's actually a terrible movie. It has Jim Carrey in it. And Jim Carrey's character, he is, he is, his name in the movie is Bruce. And he's this janitor who's always complaining about his lot in life. And he complains in a certain situation that if he were God, he could do it better. Suddenly, like, if, if I could have your power for a day, I think I would, I would straighten everything out. So he complains and... And God comes to him, and the, the guy who plays the character of God in the film is Morgan Freeman. So Morgan Freeman comes to him, and he basically says, Fine, if you think that you can do it as good as me, I will grant you my divine power. I will make you the Almighty. You are now Bruce Almighty. And the first thing that he does is he starts hearing, Bruce starts hearing these whispers and these murmurings in his head. And he comes to find out that he's hearing the prayers of people crying out for him. Selfish things, really desperate things. And he gets so overwhelmed by just the amount of information coming in, he's like, I got the plan. I'm going to set up an email system. So suddenly he snaps his finger, there's a computer there in front of him, and all of a sudden all the prayers start coming in an email form. So he sits down and he starts trying to respond to them, and he gets so overwhelmed because as soon as he can type one and send one out, 50 more come. And he gets so overwhelmed that basically what he does is he... He highlights the whole list, clicks reply all, and puts yes, and hits send. Suddenly, everybody in creation gets exactly what they want. And 
The thing that's amazing about that is absolute chaos breaks out. Because suddenly everybody gets their, even their selfish prayers. Lord, give me a Lamborghini. Fine. Okay, Lord, help me, you know, help defeat this guy. Suddenly every chaos breaks out. Because suddenly now man is in control and not God. And it's an amazing part of the movie. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, I think we would do the same thing. I mean, we're impatient with our own families, right? Our families come to us, and I have two small children, and they come, and daddy, 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 I need this, daddy, I need this. And at the end, you know, about 7 o'clock at night, I'm like, I'm done. Fine. Whatever. <laughs> I, think, I think we've all had those moments where we're impatient, much less with other people. And the thing about this psalm that's so amazing is, thankfully, God does not respond like us. He doesn't just blow people off and say, I'm too busy for you. Right now. I don't have time for that. The psalmist cries out for help, and he finds that God is a gracious listener. We see that God is not dead. God is not out to lunch. God's not kicked back in the recliner, waiting, waiting for the right moment to get up. God is active. He's moving. He's in control. And he, he, the amazing thing about this is God could ignore us because we've sinned against him. I mean, think about that. We've sinned against God's holy character. We say, Lord, please give me this. He says, you've sinned and broken my law. Why should I listen to you? Go away. But the amazing thing about the Bible is God does not respond like that, does He? He responds with unbelievable grace. He hears us. When we pray to Him, our prayers are lifted up. And, and even in our brokenness, they're delivered by the Holy Spirit to His throne of grace. And He hears us. That our prayers are met with the open ear and the gracious listening ear of Almighty God. And that is amazing. That is really hopeful. That when you're praying, even in those moments where you think... What is up with this prayer? Does, does, am I really even doing anything? I feel like I'm talking to myself. God hears you. And he's a gracious listener. And he wants to hear you. He wants to talk to his children. And the thing is, is that God, we deserve to be left alone in the canyon, pinned to the wall with no one to hear us. Because of our sin. But he rescued us in the canyon and brought us out, right? See, amazing thing. God, God does hear us and He does respond. Psalm 40 verse 1 says, I waited patiently for the Lord and He inclined to me and He heard my cry. And Matthew Henry in his commentary, here's what he wrote. He said, Jeremiah's out of the dungeon, Daniel's out of the den, and Jonah's out of the fish's belly. That God moves towards and rescues broken people and draws them to Himself and hears them and, and meets them where they are. That God graciously listens to the cries of needy sinners. And as the psalmist continues to think through his plight here, he not only finds that God is a gracious listener, he also finds that God is a gracious forgiver, which is our second point. Look at verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Think about this. The psalmist continues to feel the weight of his sin. Verses 1 and 2. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my cries for mercy. Verse 3. If you kept a record of my sins, O Lord, who could stand before you? Who could stand before your holiness? He feels this weight. It says, if you should mark iniquities. If you have the NIV, it says, if you kept a record of sins. It's this image of like a ledger or a grade book or a slate. That every time we sin against God, it's another tick in our column, right? And what Romans 5 tells us is that we come into the world, Romans 5, 12 to 21, Paul was talking about the nature of man and his sinfulness from the day that he was born, that we come in with a full slate. We come in utterly broken and helpless and desperate. 
when placed in comparison to God's holiness. And notice that the psalmist is not crying out, and this is like a courtroom kind of scene almost, the psalmist is not in court crying not guilty. He's not saying it's not me. I didn't do it. He says, if you kept a record of sins, he knows that his ledger is full of marks. He knows that he's guilty and he's deserving wrath. And even the folks who have sung and read this psalm for centuries know this is true about themselves. But Psalm 130 reminds us yet again of God's holiness and our utter depravity before him. That sin has us by the throat and we're condemned. That's a really hard thing to say and a hard thing to hear. And if Psalm 130 ended right there, this would be the saddest sermon ever. But it doesn't, does it? When faced with this prospect, even the most calloused heart echoes the cries of the psalmist. Who could stand before you? Because we forget our own plight before God. We think we're pretty good people. We give, our little, we give ourselves a little pat on the back when we show patience towards others. And the thing is, we forget about how patient God is with us. We forget that it took nothing less than the death of God's perfect Son to redeem us. But just as we're about to be overtaken by the rising water... Verses 1, 2, and 3 are like the water filling the canyon. And just as we're about to be overcome, just as it's right up to our chin, right up to our neck, and we feel like we're about to drown, here's where verse 4 comes in. And look at what it says. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. What an amazing promise. What an amazing gospel. What an amazing God. In the midst of your sin and brokenness, Oh, Lord, who could stand before you? In all, in my, I'm, I stand almost naked before you in my sin. Who, who could stand before you? But with you, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. There's, we're, when the wave of sin feels like it's about to overtake us, we're met with the wave of grace that, that washes over us. I mean, think about in verse 3, we hit the dark, deep ocean floor. The boat has capsized. It is sunk to the bottom. And, but then in verse 4, the life raft deploys, and we begin to make our rapid ascent towards the surface. The anchor is broken, the anchor of sin is broken, and we cling to Jesus all the way up. We cling to our only hope, the life raft that we have. And in one, of, one of these days, I want to do a, ser a sermon series entitled, God Has a Big Butt, with one T. Because there are some amazing passages... There are some amazing passages in the Bible that hinge on, that hinge on God's grace that are often denoted by the word but, B-U-T. Amazing passages. Here's one of them. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom all once lived in the passions of our flesh, Carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's great. All thanks for that uplifting word. I'm going to crochet that on my pillowcase. Thank you so much. But here's where it shifts. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What an amazing passage. What an amazing picture. The truck of humanity has careened off the cliff, and God steps in and saves us from going over the, over the cliff. It's amazing. Verses 1 through 3 in this psalm give us the unvarnished truth about humanity that we're all dead in sin. But this is why the gospel is good news for us. 
Because God has stepped in and saved the truck of humanity from falling over the cliff. There's this great song by these guys named the Avett Brothers called Shame. And the chorus in the song, the chorus goes over and over and over again. Shame, boatloads of shame, day after day, more of the same. And we see that shame-filled, broken people find undeserved grace and forgiveness with God. That the psalmist owns his sin, he earnestly repents of it. And God responds by taking that mark-covered slate of sin that he has and smashing it at the foot of the cross. But, however, that last phrase in verse 4 reminds us of the greater purpose of God. It says that you may be feared. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And notice that it doesn't say that you may be taken for granted. With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. And what that word means is held in reverence and awe. Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, which if you have not read, you need to read. He uses this phrase called cheap grace. Basically what he says is if we forget that it took nothing less than the death of God's perfect son to redeem us from sin, then it's cheap grace. We just think that it's, God is like a Santa Claus handing out presents. But instead of cheap grace, it's costly grace. That it costs God everything to redeem his broken people. And the thing is, is the result of this grace that we've been given should lead our hearts to worship. And some would argue, you might even be thinking this, well... If, if that's the case, well, then God's just this vain, selfish egomaniac. He's just in it for himself. He just needs people to pat, his, pat him on the back and tell him how great he is. And the thing about this is, what would you rather worship? Yourself? What you've done to save yourself? I mean, what do you possibly bring to the table? We're about to partake of the table here. We see that God, what God has brought to the table. His own son. And that we can taste and see that the Lord is good. That this reverent fear and honor is well placed upon the God who graciously saved you from the depths of sin by offering up a son that you could be redeemed. It's not egomania. It is absolute grace. And if God gets all the credit for that, I'm not complaining. The life rafts deployed, the psalmist is thrust upward, and then the surface of the water breaks and redemption is found. Morning has broken, the storm has passed, the dark night of the soul is over. As the psalmist is reminded, as our third point, God is a gracious redeemer. There is this great hymn that we're about to sing as our closing, as our closing hymn. And it's called, My Jesus, I Love Thee. I don't know if you've ever heard it before. It is a phenomenal hymn. And basically, one of, here's, here's what one of, the, uh, one of the verses says. It says, My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. On thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. Great Look at verses 5 and 6 here. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. We see two names for God being used in these verses, Yahweh and Adonai. Yahweh, this covenant-making and covenant-keeping God. Adonai, my Lord, my master, my ruler. Verse 5 reads, I wait for the Lord, I wait for Yahweh. My soul, my whole being, my guts wait for you. And what gives the psalmist hope? The covenant promises of a covenant God found in His covenant word. And how often do we put ourselves, how often do we put our trust in ourselves?
ourselves instead of Yahweh. Psalm 40, verse 2, He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog, and He set my foot on a rock. Psalm 42, verse 5, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him in my salvation. Look back at verse 6. It says, My soul waits for the Lord, my Master, my Ruler, my King. I wait for you more than the watchman for the morning. Think about the longest night you've ever had. What did you never have to doubt? That the sun was going to come up. Never. You never had to doubt that. You waited for it. You longed for it. You knew that it was coming. We take it for granted, but many of us hate the morning, right? But the psalmist didn't. His entire being strained to see that first glimmer of light because it brought relief and an end to the anxious wondering of what was lurking in the shadows. Basically, a picture of the king has come and he sits on his throne. And in Revelation 22, Jesus is called the bright morning star. And so what we see here is we have moved from the dark night of the soul to the bright morning star in eight verses. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The psalm has moved from shame to redemption, just like the whole Bible moves from shame to redemption. I mean, think about, think about your Bible as we close up here. As we, if you were to take your Bible and you were to open it up and you were to move past those, you were to move past those little translator notes and all that stuff at the beginning that nobody really reads except for seminary students, and you get to the first page of your Bible, Genesis 1, you will see God creates all things. He creates man and woman. He puts them in the garden, and a page and a half later, man blows it. We make it a page and a half of the Bible before we blow it. So what's the whole rest of the Bible about? God redeeming those broken people and restoring that relationship in Genesis 1 and 2. The whole Bible comes full circle. In Revelation 21 and 22, it's a return to the picture of God walking with His people and all things have been made new. And now look what happens in verse 7 when we think about what we've had that picture in our head. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love and with Him is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all their iniquity. Again, we get the imperative voice here. O Israel, hope in the Lord, hope in Yahweh. Why? Because he's going to redeem them. For with Yahweh there is steadfast love and redemption. With the covenant God comes covenant love. And this love is plentiful and it gives us hope as we move forward. It's also effectual though. In verse 8 it says that he's going to redeem Israel. It's not just I love you. I'm going to love you and redeem you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to make all things new. I'm going to ransom you. I mean, this promise, this promise to Israel in verse 8 is our promise as Christians today as well, too. He will redeem us from all our iniquity, from all His iniquity, from all of His wrath, because He poured it on Jesus. As we conclude here, we see that God truly is a gracious listener. He's a gracious forgiver. He's a gracious redeemer. That God hears our cries for mercy, and He sent Jesus that because of Jesus, we're forgiven, and we can once again stand in His presence. We don't have to hide in the shadows. We can move towards the throne of grace. That God sent Jesus to seek and reclaim lost sinners like us, and because of Him, we've been redeemed. That Jesus has ransomed. He has literally purchased us back from the grave by enduring the agony of the cross. Y'all, the tree did not fall on us because it fell on Him first. 
Jesus endured the darkest night of the soul that you could ever imagine. For you and for me. And took the tree for us. Now morning has come and we have hope because we can look and see what the Redeemer has done. We can look and see that waves of grace are now washing over us. Jesus endured the darkest night of the soul so that he could be our bright morning star. Look at verse 6. This phrase is repeated for emphasis. It says, My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. Usually when you see something like that in Hebrew that's doubled like that, it's, re it's repeated for emphasis. Get this, y'all. Really get this is what it's saying. My soul waits for you more than the watchman for the morning. More than the watchman for the morning. May we be like those watchmen standing on the hill waiting for the first corner of light for the bright morning star, for Jesus. May in the midst of our darkness and brokenness and the shadows that we live in now, may the light of Jesus and the light of the gospel pierce forth into our hearts. May we be like those watchmen who wait for him, who wait for the morning to come, who wait for hope, who wait for glory. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you that we can hope in you. Thank you that if you, we, we stand before you, if you marked iniquities, who could stand before you? But with you there's plentiful redemption. Thank you that you did not leave us in the canyon pinned to the wall, but that you came and you rescued us and redeemed us. You removed the boulder of sin from us, Lord, that we could walk with you again. Father, we pray that as we come to the table this morning, that our hearts would be filled with love and gratitude for just what you have done to redeem us. Your body broken, your blood spilled for us. May we taste and see that the Lord is good. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. Pray that you would meet us here and give us hope. Take our weak knees and strengthen them as we move out. Help us to love others for your sake and for your